Welcome to Virgin Territory, a podcast brought to you by SHIP. Each episode brings you new guests and new topics. We ask all the questions you are dying to know, from dating, sexual education and wellness, to kink, polyamory, and everything in between. Now please welcome your host, Vima Manfredo. Welcome back, everyone, for another exciting episode of Virgin Territory. Uh, today, I have a surprise for all of you. I have a co-host joining me, uh, Josh, our sound engineer, and I also my partner in crime, and I kind of stole him to join us on this conversation. Um, and for our special guest, we have Ashley. Welcome, Ashley. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thanks for having me this evening. And um, thanks to all of the listeners who have taken a moment to consider some entertainment or learning. Yay. Um, so I'm very excited. Um, I love it when I have a panel of people to talk to and it's not just me. Um, wait, wait. You, I thought was, I was a co-host. I didn't think this was going to be a panel. <laughs> this, is, this is this is something new the only reason you convinced me to even be here is because it happened to mention bdsm in the show notes yes definitely <laughs> um maybe i'm gonna send questions your way maybe not we'll see how the episode goes but first um actually um could you introduce yourself to us and to our audience let us know what do you do what's your expertise and all that wonderful stuff Absolutely. I am a sexuality educator by hobby. It's something that I do part-time and would love to do it full-time. I get the opportunities as they come to um, facilitate learning for different groups. So whether that is a group of parents who are learning um, strategies for potty training their kid in a sex-positive way, or whether that's a group of BDSM kinksters who are interested in um, some self-awareness skills to understand what their senses need or want so they can communicate better with partners, or whether that's a group of sixth graders who are learning about um, media and manipulation and um, Photoshop and how the images that they consume are, are uh, changed and sexualized so that they can be more informed about their own body self-image and that sort of thing. So really any kind of, of topic about sexuality, I dive into the Our Whole Lives curriculum and I find the most applicable uh, activities and questions for self-introspection and then I share those with whatever group wants me to talk and share. Can I ask just because um, I'm not aware of it and I don't know uh, how many of our listeners are. Can you explain a little bit about what um, our whole life is or was it? It looks like OWL. That's right. The OWL curriculum. It's a curriculum that starts in kindergarten and it goes all the way through death. And there are different sections of um, books of knowledge, basically, uh, for the different ages. And within all of the content, it assumes that we are sexual beings that will change and grow and that it is good and positive for us to be curious about ourselves um there's so much there <laughs> yeah, well, we've, um, we've had a number yeah. of uh, a number of guests who've talked mainly about sexual education um you know in, in 
folks in the age range similar to to us. Um, we've also had a guest who spoke about sexual education and health for uh, seniors, and we've had people talk about youth in the sense of their own children and how they interact with them, but very few have actually had some uh, direct interaction with youth and actually talking about sexual health and education. So I applaud you for that. Um, how how has that how has that been? How is that different than say talking with someone? Uh, I imagine do you talk to everybody from like kindergarten at least through their preteens as well? Yes, um, with little ones, I, I just finished a virtual opportunity for ages five through nine, where we talked about um, like the no go tell strategy for sexual abuse prevention where we talked about how to identify a safe versus an unsafe adult, um, those kind of things. And then um, it goes up, like it layers upon itself so that um, if, a, if, a, if a six-year-old knows the parts of consent and, oh, oh, the continuous part was missing because that person didn't check in when they were wrestling to see in the middle if their friend wanted to keep wrestling, like that layers and layers as youth get older and go through this program. So it starts with this great foundation of basic information of consent and bodily autonomy and uh, appropriate anatomy terms for your body and being able to communicate in an um, assertive and active voice, meaning I want this as opposed to I, um, I'm thirsty. Okay, well, you're thirsty, but I want water. That's a very different way of communicating. And then it layers and grows from there as kids age, meaning in sixth grade, we're talking about um, non-verbal communication um, in very clear terms, like, okay, we're going to do this role play, and I want this group to watch what that group is doing and pick up on all the nonverbal cues that will share the story. So it's it's this layering that happens as kids grow up, and it's really fun. No, that's, <laughs> that's really... absolutely fantastic. And it, like you said, it, it, it layers. So you start with the foundation, and you just keep increasing as, as both their understanding of the world around them increases, which is great. And I realize yes. I'm, I'm jumping well ahead of some questions. I have just one more question before I let Vima put us back on track. And that is, so, so you're actually based out of Indiana. I am. Uh, and I don't know how many of our listeners are actually across the country. I imagine most of them are in New England. But um, about how many would, would you guess about how many other folks are um, teaching these types of things across the country? Currently, very, very few. Uh, the Our Whole Lives curriculum is based out of the Unitarian Universalist Church. And the Unitarian Universalists very strongly follow science and the practices of science. And so for the past two years, the UUA, Unitarian Universalist Association, has said churches need to be closed. It is not safe for us to gather. And so we're going to follow science and actually distance ourselves and protect our communities. So because of that, the Our Whole Lives curriculum has basically stopped for the past two years, which I'm concerned about. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to come share here is because I feel like there's so few opportunities for people to have access to the information since the UU churches have been so careful. Um, we've missed two whole years of our youth's education because almost all of the access to this curriculum comes through the church, the Unitarian Universalist Church or the UCC church. And we've kept our kids away from other kids because of the pandemic. And so we've 
missed um, valuable years of opportunities to discuss sex ed. Right, and, and you missed that, that opportunity to do the, the layering that we were just talking about, yeah. where you may need to be playing catch up to get all those kids that are between kindergarten and whatever, uh, those two years in a very short amount of time and trying to make sure that they are really absorbing those concepts in a quicker manner. Um, kids are very smart, but these concepts are a little bit more intricate and nuanced. So I understand the, 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 the sadness there. But like Josh said, I'm going to try and get us back on track to the original question that I had uh, to start this out is, how did you find yourself in this field? I found myself very ill-equipped as a human. <laughs> I was ready to explore. I came from a very evangelical uh, purity culture background where it was just wait till you're married, wait till you're married. We're not going to discuss anything about anything. And then somehow you're supposed to know how to do all the things once you're married. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so I found myself without any of those skills and was like, hey, how do I learn about this? Because now I have kids and I need to teach them better than how I was taught. Um, that's, that's how I ended up here. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to be able to communicate. This is what I like and these are my limits. And I uh, didn't really have the words or the confidence to do that. Yeah, I can I can definitely understand that. I, I didn't grow up in a very religious household, but it was still a very conservative household where, yes, you, you should be waiting until you're married. But the moment that you're married, being raised um, and socialized as a woman meant that I was for my husband and there was no talk of queerness. There was no talk of any alternatives. Um but the, the rules were I was for my husband and I could never say no because that would be breaking the rules of the marriage, which is very toxic thing to teach a 14-year-old. I absolutely agree. Yes. I mean, the main principle of this curriculum is that masturbation is the safest form of sex and that masturbation means you get to explore your own body to be able to communicate what you like um, and for it to be a focus on pleasure instead of enjoy you know and curiosity um, and that was missing from my upbringing that's for sure yeah i would i, I would echo that actually it was a very <laughs> nobody ever actually outside of um the limited sex education i got in public school where i grew up um the rest of it was just like, oh, wow. Uh, okay, I'm doing this. I'm doing this thing. I just heard someone's dog shake. <laughs> was that ours? That was our dog. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, you know, and so so you masturbate and then you, you instantly feel shame or guilt and you're trying to hide it, you know, and, you know, so when your parents, you know, lift up a, a mattress to clean the bedroom and they find a magazine or they find whatever else, it's like, oh, you know, and then, and then you really get in trouble, you know, and mm -hmm. yeah, so it's uh, glad that there's. There's something out there that's something, changing that. Yes. And something I love about this curriculum is that we, as the um, educators, we are going alongside the parents and we're sharing some of the resources that we're using within the class. So then they know what their kids have seen. And there's even something called a home link that goes with each lesson 
and it's like uh, home, like homework, but it's not homework. It's optional. It's a bunch of like discussion questions and videos to watch together as a family. And so it arms parents with more informed, more up-to-date material, resources, and guidance for these kind of conversations so that the kids are not getting mixed signals. Now, is this um, this program, you're teaching it in the schools, is that correct? No, no only privately. Privately, because okay. Because I'm in Indiana, it's actually illegal for me to teach it in schools. Really? Do you care to expand on that a little bit? Uh, <laughs> so, so everybody it, else understands why it's illegal in Indiana? Well, frustrating. <laughs> there's, actually, there's actually a law here in Indiana that says only abstinence and only penis and vagina intercourse can be shared in public school. Wow. So... Any person that comes outside of that realm of heteronormative sex gets no mention in a public school. So, so how do how do parents? I assume it's parents that seek out this first. How correct? How, so, how do they go about doing that? Is there uh, like a so resource? So, I'm on for them? Facebook, and um, I'm Let's Talk About Sex Ed with Ms. Ashley. So, I have a business page on Facebook, and people can contact me, um, contract with me. I'll travel and teach. Um, I'm also on Instagram, Ms. Ashley Robertson. And um, again, I will contract with people and travel and teach. I'm also doing lots of stuff virtually so that it's more accessible for people. Um, But yeah, it's not actually an option in public schools. So I've got a couple of contracts with private schools locally, but um, it's, it's kind of a tough sell. We live in a very conservative place where this idea of a gender binary is still very rooted. And so a lot of the content that I have to share about gender diversity and uh, relationship diversity and how all of those things are, are on the menu and possible through ethical conversation is hard for a lot of people where I am. Yeah, that is definitely very heartbreaking knowing that the whole of Indiana is like no we're not going to teach education that is so needed to navigate the world that we live in we're not in a heteronormative life not all of us are um so i i i was reading your bio and you also mentioned um that you are also non non monogamous i'm not gonna say that word again just because i can't pronounce it But how does how does your experiences in non-monogamy have shaped the way that you approach education? I think it's set me free. I know that sounds really, really romanticized, but there is so much repetition of this idea of the relationship escalator where you meet someone, you flirt, you start dating, you kiss, you escalate your physical activities, you whatever the next step is, right? Then you get married, then you have kids. This this concept of the relationship escalator is so ingrained in in everything that four-year-olds are playing wedding with their Barbies. You know, it's just, it's everywhere. And for me to step off that escalator was so freeing. For me to be able to say, you know, this other thing is what I want and that be okay. And then be able to find partners who agree that's okay. And also I want this other thing. It also doesn't align with the relationship escalator and we can have both. We can have all. Um, 
was just so wonderful. And I feel like it's shaped the way I teach because my goal is not to impart knowledge like I'm correct, unless it's science-based information about like the effectiveness of condoms or the need for a double barrier method for, for birth control. Um, that's scientific. But beyond that, it's helped me to think, how do I encourage people to think? What kind of questions can I ask so that they can look within themselves and figure out more about themselves to be able to share, have fuller experiences of life um, that aren't so, did I succeed? Did I get married? Check. That's not how it works. <laughs> so in order to open their mind to like, what does success mean for you right now in this phase of your life? What does happiness look like to you in this phase of your life? and define it for yourself, um, it's very freeing. Definitely, and um, there's a lot to be said about how you define successes in a relationship that are not, we got married and one of us died. Exactly. All right, so there's, that marriage was successful because we reached marriage and then until death do us part and someone died success that's not the only success and that's a very macabre way of looking at success um but something that i i've tried to embody in myself in my platonic relationships and in my um, re um romantic relationships as well is the knowledge that success means if we had that connection of any sort of connection. And even if we parted ways, we don't hate each other. And I, that's how I define it. If at the end of our journey together, we part ways in a way where we don't hate each other, we can talk fondly about each other, even if, if it's a friendship or it's a romantic uh, relationship, if it's a, a one night stand, if you can talk fondly about that person and the humanity behind that person, then it was a success. And the, the length of time of that relationship doesn't dictate the successfulness of it. Absolutely. Yeah, and I feel like this idea of our bodies being playgrounds that we get to decide who we share those with and therefore um, experience something physically new with someone um, and go away from that experience having positive fond feelings about that experience and that other person it just adds to life and so getting out of this mindset of xyz has to happen before said sexual experience with some person like there's no real rules <laughs> uh, right. it's, all, it's all contrived it's, it's all made up and it has to be individual for each person and based on each person's risk profile and based on um actual consent where you're fully informed about the decisions you're going to make um and do together so um Ethical non-monogamy has taught me that I've, I've, you know, experienced the good, the bad, and the ugly to fully understand the work and um, depth that it can bring to life. Yeah, and I think the the best example you can see is in the practice of BDSM and kink in general, where you can have a really good relationship with someone that you meet at at a munch or at a at a 
a dungeon night or something like that and you have that shared experience that may or may not end up in a sexual experience and if your limits and your negotiation was respected and the scene was the way that both of you or more than both of you um, negotiated to be and it was what it was supposed to be then that's a great short-term relationship that happened in one or three nights and then you part ways and both of you the, the the top and the bottom will remember that experience as they experience it with the happiness of this was really good that person was really good that they got what they wanted or I was able to give what they wanted and that's the end of that one yes mutual pleasure mutual joy mutual curiosity like that's what sexuality is all about absolutely and it's missing from so many curriculums <laughs> i want to bring it back i want to bring it back <laughs> so so since we've since we since we sent the spent a minute excuse me wow my tongue tied there uh talking about bdsm let me segue into our next question on that and that is i mean what Vima had mentioned you know is is a, po a very positive side of bdsm style interactions there is also a very toxic side of it as well um and we've we've seen that through our communications with people within the bdsm community and those that are within the sexual health and education circle um and you're engaging kids very young um and talking about sexual education is there also a point where you talk about bdsm and um how to do that and be well informed about consent and boundaries um, and, and what the different definitions are. And again, you know, some of the same things using anatomically correct information um, and all that other fun stuff that comes with BDSM. So within the Our Whole Lives curriculum, everything is based on the circles of sexuality. So if anyone is listening and they want to see this resource, you just search the circles of sexuality. And it's a Venn diagram and all the circles sort of overlap. And one of the circles is sexualization. Within sexualization, we have a lot of bad stuff. You know, there's incest and rape and um, human trafficking, you know, like bad stuff. And when we're talking about this circle and we're doing activities within this circle with high schoolers specifically, I spend time sharing about the shadow self giving your shadow self some attention, some voice, some light of day. Because if we spend so much time keeping our shadow self locked away so that it doesn't get explored, it doesn't get its moment of curiosity, basically that festers into shame. That festers into um, desires that can't be lived in any way that's healthy. And so then that's when people call other people because they they have no way of saying hey i would like to um, degrade someone because that's something that gets me turned on sexually okay that's fine if you want to degrade someone you just have to get consent first <laughs> instead of catcalling random strangers and so giving some voice and some light and space for that shadow self that is within that sexualization circle in the circles of sexuality allows us space to say there are these parts of me that I don't fully understand and I'm not comfortable with and I need to learn more about but the only way I can do that is to give it some space give it some thought give it some 
area to play. And I feel like the more we share about that shadow self being part of our sexual selves, the fewer people we're going to have going to jail. Um, because they'll be able to say, I have this urge and this urge would be unhealthy if I did it this way, but there are safe ways for me to get some of those needs and desires met. So with high schoolers is when this conversation starts um, and we talk about the safest forms of kinky exploration being uh, Velcro cuffs, because those can come off easily and they don't, um, you know, hurt nerve endings and those kind of things. Um, blindfolds and exploring with your senses being the best way to be kinky first, because an ice cube can be a very kinky toy um, if it's done intentionally and it's not going to hurt anyone. <laughs> no one's going <laughs> to die on an ice cube. So we, we start with those like very simple, like do some sensory depri deprivation activities, see what, what you feel and what you experience. Um, do some bondage that's safe, meaning Velcro cuffs or um, like a, a, like a, a tightly fitted outfit, you know, like, or saran wrap, not on the face. Um, so like those, those kind of like accessible items that high schoolers can have access to because you can't like purchase something online without a credit card or go into a sex shop and then giving voice to those curiosities as if it's not a bad thing. If they're getting full consent, if they're doing it with someone. So yes, that's, that's how it happens. It happens in high school. There's one workshop, um, that's tied in with that like shadow self. So, um, so you start in high school, how well received is that by, by students? Because obviously, you know, you, you spend some time talking about consent to perform an action on somebody or to receive an action. Um, do you also talk about consent to talk about BDSM? Um, cause obviously I, I have different circles of friends. Um, some are aware of some of the activities I do and some are very unaware. Um, and the ones that are unaware are not the ones listening to this podcast for sure. Um, but there's also times where, you know, I might want to discuss, um, whether I had a scene, uh, with either with my partner or with somebody else. And the other person's like, you know what? I, I really don't want to talk about that today. Or, you know, that's not really, you know, my thing. And it kind of makes me a little squeamish so can we talk about something else and it's like yeah okay we can do that so even though you know where i might be out to them in some of my activities there's also that consent to talk about it with somebody so honestly no i haven't i, I love that you just shared that with me <laughs> there's two versions of consent that i teach with the high schoolers yes until no and no until yes and I make it very clear that the, the best version is no until yes, meaning you assume you do nothing until you ask specifically what you want to do. But if they're aware that some people operate under the yes until no version of consent, then they're more prepared to stand up for themselves and advocate for themselves to say no. So um, within those two versions of consent, um, basically that's a framework for friendships and conversations, meaning I can talk to you about anything until you tell me no, or I should ask 
before I'm bringing something up that could be uh, offensive or triggering or worrisome to get your permission before you say yes. So I feel like that framework would be where that would fit, um, which I could expand. So thank you. No, you, I'm, I'm happy to share. <laughs> um, so uh, in both of those scenarios, do you find yourself teaching one more than the other? No till until yes or yes until no, because I feel like at least um, with what I understand on, on how I grew up learning what consent was, it was always, you know, um, basically uh, yes until no. Um, which I feel isn't really the most appropriate way to handle it after educating myself and hearing many others speak, right? I just assume it's no until I specifically ask for something or um, or the other person asks me if I'm interested in doing something and then I, you know, consent that way. Are, are you finding you teaching one more than the Correct. other? I, I teach no until yes. That is what I teach. No until yes. Meaning every person has bodily autonomy, period. Like, <laughs> that, that's what I teach. Right. Um, but like you said, culturally, yes until no is part of our experience. And so being aware of that difference can help youth navigate those relationships and even, even say as dorky and nerdy as it is, like I operate under the no until yes version of consent. And so I'm going to ask all the things. <laughs> well, um, I, I mean, that's, that's it. actually, yes, it, it, it does sound dorky, but you know, there, there is a whole section, um, you know, not only in, in BDSM, but also in ethical non-monogamy of, of, uh, I guess you'd call them elevator speeches where when yep. two people are about to engage in, in, I'll just call them an activity because it could be sexual or, or otherwise, where they discuss what their boundaries are, you know, what what maybe even their STI status is, um, and all of those things. And I think that that's that's a good place to slide that in there as well as in that introductory speech. Yes, I, and I, I prefer with... elevator speech by the way because I don't uh, introduce myself with that right out of the gate when I meet somebody new. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and I think what you're talking about is exactly what I want all of the youth that are experiencing this curriculum to become comfortable with is this idea that I'm going to be so confident with what I want, what I need. I'm going to be so capable of saying um, I statements and my feelings that none of that would be nerdy or weird. But the reality is it is. So through practice, through role playing, through repeated layers of this content, it can become more comfortable. And that's my goal. Well, I wonder if it's right. just awkward and nerdy for us um, being a, a bit older um, because it's not something maybe we learned early on and we're discovering it now. And so the, the drive for this behavioral and cultural shift will be driven by those that are younger than us. Um, I mean, now, even even when I when I do that type of speech, you know, I make sure that I that I'm the one that usually brings it up because someone's unsure of, well, how do I go from having this conversation um, that we're having where we're learning about each other and maybe talking about our dogs and our cats um, to, okay, I'm really into this person. Um, how do we take it to the next level? And that, that speech there helps bridge that gap. And yes, for the other person, it could be awkward, but it's also, you know, me putting myself out there saying, these are my cards um, and this is what I'm into. Is that something that interests you? Right. And I think embracing the awkward is very important. Uh, that's usually how I operate. Of This is going to be very awkward, but um, this is what I know of myself. And 
these are my cards, this is my elevator speech. And it doesn't matter that it's awkward if you say it's awkward and just embrace it and embrace your dorkiness for what it is. It's an endearing quality of people for the most part. And yes, I'm, I'm, I will say I'm so encouraged every time I work with a group of middle schoolers. They are such a new brand of kid and it is so wonderful to see. They're they're not stuck in this black and white world. They are so curious about what it can be and it it's going to be a great future. Yeah. And going going a, a little bit to what Josh was saying about consent to have that conversation that's something that I do with my best friend for uh, a lot of conversations she has a lot of things going on in her life and so do I and, and sometimes our brains are not there so if we if she wants to talk to me about something that is heavy um, a topic that is not the weather um, unless it's a New England weather uh, and if she wants to talk to me but she wants to make sure that I have the mental capacity to listen and not be burdened by it and be there for her without destroying myself she'll just ask hey I want to talk to you about this topic do you have time and the way that she says do you have time it implies do you have time and capacity to mm -hmm. talk about it and it's the same way that I that I do with her and I do with a lot of other people hey do you have time to talk about this um about your car extended warranty or something like that <laughs> and the the, they have the time to tell me like, hey, I, right now I have a lot going on in my head or I have a lot going on literally. I'm blowing the leaves of the backyard or something like that. I can't talk, but we can catch up later. Let's have a coffee date or let's go to the bar. Yeah, we, we use the, the phrase, do you have the spoons for blah, blah, blah. Yes, uh, we, we've done that before. And I've had to explain yeah. the spoon theory to many people. Yeah, the spoon theory is is um, it's a great one. So um, obviously, you you work with the with this. I, I keep wanting to call them students. I don't know why, um, but we'll call them students with children, um, with youths. Um, but you also work with the parents too. Yes, I actually have had almost equal parent education opportunities and kid opportunities because kids have been so like screened out over the past year and a half that parents are sort of like, okay, I got to do something about this gap that's happened in my kid's education. So I'm going to learn some things. So yeah, it's been about 50, 50. So I know um, a number of people that are a part of uh, SHIP, um, the organization we're a part of and that hosts this podcast um, and many of them are are parents or looking to become parents. So uh, I guess my next question to kind of put us on track and on time here is, can we discuss a little bit of, or can you explain some of the do's and don'ts maybe for parents and caregivers that are interested in discussing some of these types of topics who can't, yes. get, who can't get to Indiana to talk to you? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So some of the most accessible do's would be have conversations early and often and conversation should be the same length as your child is old. So if your child is four, the conversation should be no longer than four minutes or whatever thing that you're doing should be no longer than four minutes. So if you're reading a, a book about, about, you know, like potty training, 
it should be a two minute long book for a two-year-old or it should be a four minute long book for a four-year-old that is a good measure of their attention span to be able to care about whatever it is you're talking about um same thing for like a 15 year old so your 15 year old you're trying to have a conversation about masturbation uh, maybe you sit down together and you watch a seven minute video and then you talk for another having trouble with math eight minutes <laughs> um, about whatever reflections they have from the video or um, whatever feelings they were feeling when they were watching it. And the goal is to talk less than the kid. So you're you're supposed to be asking questions to get them thinking and speaking less at them but listening more so those are some of the easiest ones also make sure you're using anatomically correct vocabulary so um, if we're looking at the outside of a body there might be a penis and testicles and anus or there might be a vulva and an anus not a vagina the vagina is on the inside um, and the reason that's important is because if there is hopefully not uh, sexual abuse in any form, a child that can appropriately name the action and the body parts can substantiate a claim. And a child that cannot, the claim will not be substantiated within court. So um, arming your children with the appropriate words can actually um, protect them. So those are some of the good tips. Um, I'll also say uh, having, having a non-crisis attitude about being a parent is very helpful because if you can be cool as a cucumber when a kid falls down and busts open their leg and is bleeding that kind of cool as a cucumber feel about hey our bodies are amazing our bodies are strong our bodies are capable will directly translate to all the stuff of sex so taking each of those opportunities of crisis as a parent to breathe center yourself and enter with a calm cool head later will prepare you for other things that arise like finding the magazine under the mattress or whatever other thing that is more um shock value more of an actual crisis because if you are a consistently calm cool collected parent in moments of crisis then you are the person your kid wants to go to when they're having a crisis because you're level-headed and reliable. So that would be another tip I have. Those are the do's. Yeah. Anything specifically I missed that you can think of? I, I don't know. You're the educator, not us. So some of the don'ts would be uh, talking a lot about the topic because especially about your own experience or your own personal life or like oversharing, that would be a don't because especially teenagers, like they don't want to know. <laughs> um, so facilitating that conversation so that your family values are highlighted through question asking is better than just talking at them a lot. Another don't would be like, handing them a package of condoms and like walking away like <laughs> this is the same sort of skill as like teaching your kid how to use a knife like you're not gonna hand your kid a knife and walk away so you should equally consider that there needs to be 
opportunities to practice and touch them and get over the weirdness and use them. And so consider that <laughs> like it, it, it will be weird for you to all sit around the kitchen table with a bunch of bananas and condoms, but like do it 10 times, please, before your kid is of the age where they would be using one because just handing them them is not actually teaching them how to use them. Um, <laughs> the same goes for uh, menstrual products. Uh, yes. I had the delightful experience of not being explained how to use a menstrual product before yes. I had my first my first menstruation because it came in so early at the ripe old age of nine years old. Yep. So no one in my family was expecting me to bleed so early. Yeah. Um, so they they handed me a pad and went like, "Here, this is what you need to use." And I just sat in the floor of my bathroom looking at it like. What do I do with this? Doing with this, it was just the enormous boat. <laughs> almost not the maternity ones, but almost as big. And I'm nine or ten years old, so I'm tiny. And I'm looking at this like, uh, is, does this go inside me? Yeah, no, I didn't, it I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to dispose of them. Should I flush them? It's a pad. I don't think I can flush them. So that's the the kind of thing that teach your kid before you expect the kid to experience the thing is very important. So if you have a kid that has the uterus, um, five, it's a good age, not 10. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Um, one of the analogies that people in the sex ed field use is swimming. This magical age of what like 16 when kids are allowed to start dating or something which is so arbitrary um I, right all of a sudden that's when they're supposed to be told the birds and the bees and all this stuff it, it's similar to just like dropping a 16 year old into a pool having never gone bathing suit shopping or had swim lessons or or anything so that's the analogy that some of the sex educators use it's like hey you got to start by being comfortable in the swimsuit. Then you got to start by being comfortable with your feet in the water. Then you got to start by being comfortable with your knees, you know, like up into your knees. And we need to give our kids the same sort of easing into this concept as we would swimming. Right. And include also dental dams on, on the, you're going to play with condoms and bananas, include dental dams and I guess papayas. I can't yes! think of the other <laughs> <laughs> You've been watching one too many TikToks. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. So I think I think there's a lot of don'ts. But our goal as parents is to be askable. And so that means creating a space where you're calm and you're open to questions. And you're willing to say, I don't know, but give me a, an hour to research and I'll come back to you. Uh, doesn't mean that you have to be perfect and you have to get it right every time. Uh, it just means that you have to be willing to and intentional about making space for sexuality as part of your family curriculum, family, right. culture, family culture. I think that's good, too, that you mentioned, you know, if you don't have an answer, you can you can put a pin in it, come back to it. You know, um, things change all the time, you know. 
the stuff that we're talking about now, even on this podcast and elsewhere, is not stuff or conversations we've had, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, as we discover new things about ourselves, about others, as more people are willing to share their stories and their experiences so we can we can better understand our community as a whole, I think is important. Um, with that in mind, um, how do you see your work evolving, you know, in the months and years to come? Um, and, and where do you hope to be down that proverbial road someday? I hope to I hope to be in charge of a group of sex educators as I age because I think it's important for this kind of work to be done by someone sort of closest it close can't talk. <laughs> uh, it's a daily occurrence over here at this house, so don't worry about it. I think it's important for the the work of a sex educator to be done in an age that's close-ish to the audience. I think it's very hard for someone who's much older to stay up to date with what's cool, what's trending, what's the latest, neatest thing. And so I hope in the future that I will have several years of teaching under my belt, and then I'll be able to hire people who are younger than me to continue with that kind of work. I think that um, it's important for me to know sort of my expiration date of when I can become a teacher for teachers instead of be that face with youth. But I do really, really hope that I'll be doing this full time within five years and that I'll have a, a good five, 10 year run of it and then create a space for younger educators who are more plugged in with the new to take the stage. That's what I hope. Well, we wish, right. you, wish you the best of luck in that. <laughs> um, before I kick it back over to Vima, who's going to ask you a series of questions to wrap up our podcast, which I assure you will be very entertaining. I will be very entertained. Um, <laughs> oh, I, should, I should say I, I have been the past several episodes we've done it. Um, I do want to give you a chance to um, mention the workshop you uh, recently did for ship. Um, and uh, what was what what was it about? Um, and are there any others coming up in the future? So I taught a shame-free potty training, a workshop for parents with SHIP. Um, let's see. What was it about? Uh, it was well, way well, more than well, potty, the potty training. training. <laughs> <laughs> it was way more than potty training. Uh, what I find in my day-to-day -day work as a uh, child care provider is that parents are not taught how to create structure for their kids in order to manage big changes um, less stressfully. And potty training is one of those big changes. Um, you know, moving, adding another sibling to a family, switching to a big kid bed, being dropped off at kindergarten for the first time. Like there are so many big milestones where a kid all of a sudden has to leap into this new realm of responsibility. And so my workshop was about training parents to create a structure that is reliable and comforting and um, creates attachment with their parents instead of it being this like um, disciplinarian mode of like sticker charts and um, 
you know, a list of unsuccessful tries, you know, like we want to get away from that model and get more into this mindset of how do I create structure and consistency for my kids in a way that helps us attach and bond through these big changes so that they're less um, earth shattering for everyone. And so that's really what it was about. <laughs> Potty training just happened to be the one that I know families struggle with. So it's, it's sort of the easier um, audience to, to grab. Um, all of my work with parents relies on this idea that parents are trying their best. Parents want the best outcome for their kids. And sometimes that means they're overly indulgent, overly connected, overly um, sympathetic. And teaching parents that being strong and consistent in matter of fact with kids is very safe feeling for a child. It's not that you're being um, like, an, like an authoritarian. <laughs> you're, you know, stating what you see and then having a, like a consequence that a follow through that is reliable. And those patterns are what our brain absolutely loves because then our brain can feel safe in knowing what's coming next. And so that's how I teach parents to sort of uh, attack these situations with their kids is like, okay, what's the pattern you can create for your kid that they can look for and feel secure in? And then do that pattern with fidelity. That's what I do. And are, are, are there any future workshops planned or uh, whether, whether for ship or elsewhere, if folks want to learn about currently, potty training or something else? <laughs> currently, I do not have any workshops planned. Um, I always apply when ship opens. <laughs> I think I've taught for ship the last three times. I really love your platform and your organization. Really, it's wonderful. Um, my next available opportunity is actually a divorce support group. So that's what's what I'm doing next. Yeah. Well, I will I will kick it back over to Vima to to wrap us up and I will stop talking for a little bit now. I don't Aww, I don't I don't get to I don't get to co-host often, so when I do I try to get in all my questions. Yeah. <laughs> you are a well, great co-host. Thank you. <laughs> um so that was a great a great workshop. I, I happened to catch the, the recording of it. Um and it was really good. And the workshops request uh, the request for proposal will be coming out soon again so make sure to reapply again because we would love to have you back um and for anyone listening please make sure to follow up uh, we know ship on instagram and you'll know when it is time to submit your application as well um but with that a little bit of self-promotion there i will start our favorite section of the podcast which is the hot seat um, so I'm going to ask you a couple of questions there and you just have to answer them with the first thing that comes to your mind, I guess. Oh boy. Yeah. But they'll, they'll be, they'll, they'll be fun. Uh, so first question, uh, Pepsi or Coke? Pepsi. I actually just broke that habit. Pepsi. You're the second person that says Pepsi and I cannot <laughs> handle the flavor of Pepsi. <laughs> It was a problem, but it is now fixed. <laughs> I'm so thankful to my Polymeta. My Polymeta is literally my accountability partner for Pepsi. 
and she has <laughs> she's she's helped me she's helped me kick it so Yay. Nice. <laughs> and those little things that you didn't know were a benefit of polyamory. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Next one. Uh, favorite ice cream flavor. There are so many. Uh, usually something with caramel or chocolate. Yeah. Good choice. Very good choice. <laughs> um, who's your who's the best Marvel character? I don't know any of them. <laughs> <laughs> I just lost a lot of points. With a lot of listeners. Hold on, I can I can come up with a better one. Uh, None. <laughs> Disney princesses. Disney princesses. Uh, probably the the one from Brave. Probably. Um, Merida. 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 Yeah, because she just like does the shit on her own. It's great. I like that one. I like how they animated her hair. I have very curly hair yeah. too, and I love how bouncy they made it. Yes. <laughs> That's just me being a, nerd, a computer nerd. <laughs> um, all right, my favorite question here. Wrong answer only. Why is there fuzz on a tennis ball? I'm not <laughs> clever like that. Oh, no. <laughs> wrong answer only why is there fuzz on a tennis ball you know what while you think about that i will i will claim credit for that question but i don't actually know how many people know the right answer <laughs> uh true i don't i mean i think it has something to do with like um friction and slowing a ball down but um probably no but, you're yeah, you yeah. are 100 percent on there yeah it, it has to do with <laughs> with, with dragon slowing oh the ball God. down yep wrong answers only um Probably because it feels good on a dog's tongue. Nice. I don't know. <laughs> nice, though. That's not the first time that we've gotten a similar answer. Oh, uh, but we got the opposite last time, where it was, so you don't lick it as a human. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> All right. And the last question, and Josh's favorite question, what sound does a fox make? What sound does what make? A fox. A fart? A, no, fox. a fox. Like like me. Oh! <laughs> oh, like what does the fox say? Yip, 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 What does the fox say? Yeah. Mm -hmm, that one. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being a great sport on our very silly questions to wrap up this episode. Um we just like to leave on a, on a very happy and giggly note. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. Um, you can find Ashley on Facebook, on her Facebook page. Um, it'll be on the show notes as well as her Instagram. So if you're driving, don't pull over. Just wait until you park and then go into Facebook and follow her and go into Instagram and follow her. So thank you so much. And I hope you have a wonderful evening. Thanks for having me. Hey everyone, SHIP will never stop creating spaces that provide opportunities to engage in candid, shame-free conversations about sexuality, and we are committed to building a more sexually literate society so that more of these spaces can exist. In order to do that, we need your help. Consider joining the Sex Ed Squad by visiting weknowship.org. Our Sex Ed Squad members are the very foundation of our work 
because changing our sex-negative culture requires a long-term strategy in your long-term investment. All gifts, no matter the size, have an impact. You've been listening to Virgin Territory, a podcast by SHIP, a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing culturally inclusive, medically accurate, and pleasure-guided sexuality education, therapy, and professional training to adults. You can visit us online at weknowship.org.